Welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast, your monthly source for conversations and curated content to improve your law practice with your host, Rocky Deer. Hello, and welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast. This is your host, Rocky Deer. You're not going to believe where I am today. It's a really cool room. All right, so State Bar of Texas brings you a lot of stuff, and sometimes we bring you some really cool places. So I'm sitting in this room. It's about two stories high, filled with books. No, it's not a Barnes & Noble. It's not any place you've ever been to. This is actually the library of Texas's own Brian Garner. He's our guest today, so we're going to get to talk to Brian. Now, if you've never heard the name Brian Garner, then, well, you're missing out. So Brian is hes the editor-in-chief of Black's Law Dictionary, has been for many, many years. He's written numerous books on legal writing, on the proper usage of writing. And I'm having to choose my words very carefully because he's sitting across from me, and I know he's going to catch me if I do something that's, that's grammatically incorrect. I'm taking notes. And the notes are all in his head. There's there's like no pen, no pad, nothing. He's just, he's noting all this. So next time he sees me, he can be like, do you remember that syntax error you made? And I'm going to say, well, first, hang on, let me look up what syntax means. <laughs> but Brian, thank you for being with us today. Glad to be here. So you've been, you've been busy. You've been writing books. Yeah, it seems uh, as if once I started writing my first book, uh, I've just never let up. I started the, the first book, my first week in law school, I decided I was interested in legal language. I had just finished writing a great deal about Shakespearean language, and uh, I had flirted with getting a PhD in English and uh, working on Shakespearean linguistics and lexicography, that is dictionary writing. But ultimately, I stuck to my plan to go to law school and, of course, went to the University of Texas where I... Of course. Uh, yeah, yeah. Is there any other school? Well, there are a lot of people in the Texas bar who think so, and they're, <laughs> and they're right. They're right. There are a lot of other really good schools, but uh, I was delighted to become a double Longhorn. But my first week in law school, I named and began writing a dictionary of modern legal usage. What made you do that? I mean, my first year in law school, I was trying to figure out where the Taco Bell was, <laughs> and you're writing a dictionary on modern modern English usage. Where did that come from? Um, I had just been steeped in dictionaries from the time I was about 15 and uh, had fallen in love with dictionaries. And, and then I, when I realized, I thought that the treatment of legal language was largely inadequate. I didn't like Black's Law Dictionary much. I oh. didn't like any of the other linguistic resources I was looking at. So I decided to write a book modeled on Fowler's modern English usage, but for lawyers, and I kept it a secret because I certainly didn't want to let it out that I was doing this because it seemed like a very audacious plan for a first-year law student. And I did actually keep it a secret from my classmates, but I kept note cards in my pocket, and that's where I kept my linguistic notes. So like everybody mm -hmm. else, I kept my my class notes on a regular legal tablet. Sure. And then I would whip out these cards to make linguistic notes on pronunciations. I had a first-year professor, for example, who didn't know how to say. <laughs> I'm trying to remember what the what the word is. It's it's not restitution. Now, how could I blank out on this? 
is not rescission. He 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 did misspell rescission. <laughs> He's a contracts professor. Did you call him on it? Did you say no, 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 sir? No, I just uh, made notes of it. But there was one. Oh, diminution. Oh, diminution. Okay. He would always say diminution. And I've heard that before. Drove yeah. me crazy. <laughs> uh, and I was convinced I had. And he was a visiting professor, by the way, at Texas. But I. And you I, wanted him not to come back because he was mispronouncing. Well, I thought he was kind of semi-literate, but <laughs> but he was also a very good contracts professor. He didn't end up getting a job at Texas, uh, but I would whip out these notes and I would take down notes on various pronunciations where professors disagreed on how to pronounce words. Then we're reading these cases and I'm taking down a lot of linguistic notes. I still have all those note cards. And did anybody ever ask you that, hey, Brian or Garner, whatever they called you back then, did they... What are you doing? What's with these note cards? Well, yes, there was, you know how extremely neurotic first-year law students can be, and they thought sure. maybe Garner has an edge on note-taking, and rumors started about what are these cards in Garner's pocket, and finally, a guy named Mike Snipes came up and uh, grabbed- He's a judge now here in, here in he's Dallas. He's a judge in yes. Dallas, yes. So Judge Snipes, if you're listening- <laughs> Snipes came up and grabbed them out of my pocket. And the one on top said, pursuant to, with a quotation of a sentence using pursuant to. And he said, what in the world is this? And then he started waving it around, telling all the other people in class. And, and I was, I was uh, miffed about this at first. I mean, this was, by now we're in the second semester before mm -hmm. this happened. And then Snipes and my other classmates became some of my greatest allies and every day they were supplying me with fascinating little quotations to put into my usage book. So you've forgiven Snipes since then? Absolutely. Okay, good, good. Well, then all's good. I was afraid we were going to have to bring Judge Snipes in to, to provide a rebuttal. Yeah, but, we're good friends. Oh, good, good. He's a, he's a great guy. So let's talk for a second then about who Brian Garner is. You know, we know you're a lawyer. We know you're a legal writer. Do you see yourself more as a lawyer or are you more a lexicographer at heart? Well, I think I'm both. But if you're a taxi driver, right? when a taxi driver used to say, what do you do? Right. I, early on in my career, made the mistake of saying I'm a lawyer. Mm. And then I would get 30 minutes of uh, the driver's uh, problems sure. and wanting opinions on things and having to explain, no, I, I, I can't. I don't do that area of law. I can't give you right. advice right. on this and there's no attorney-client relationship and so on. So... I learned about three years in, maybe I'm a slow learner, or maybe I wasn't taking as many taxis in those days as I do now, but since about 1988, when people have said, when taxi drivers or Uber drivers say, what do you do? I say, I'm a lexicographer. And what's and, the reaction? What do you get from uh, that? Either silence or I will <laughs> then offer, do you have any dictionary problems? I'll, I'll be happy to address them. <laughs> now, what do you think of the move of dictionaries from actual books to going online. I mean, now people go, they look up words or, you know, your smartphone probably has a dictionary app on there. Do you think that's, is that a good thing because it's more accessible or is it a bad thing because it takes something away from the process? I think it's a good thing. My big usage book today is Garner's Modern English Usage. Sure. There's an app for that. Mm -hmm. And there's an app for Black's Law Dictionary, 10th edition. And, you know, I think it's very handy when I'm, when I'm on the plane and somebody has a problem relating to some 
term the other day I was sitting on a runway and somebody had a problem about aid and a bet. And I was able to send them a screenshot immediately of the Black's Law Dictionary entry on the subject. So you were one of those people that was actually able to help out on a plane. <laughs> when they say, is there a doctor? You're like, no, but I'm a lexicographer That's and I right. can tell you about aid and a bet. That's right. That's awesome. No, it was it was not somebody on the plane who needed the help. It was a, you know, a colleague. Okay. Well, it, it's still a cool story. Though. Yeah. It's still a cool story. So, Brian, we're going to talk about something very important here. Mm. And I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, but you're not a word nerd. You're a snoot. Snoot. Is it a snoot? Snoot. Snoot. That's how I was going to say it at first, and then I thought I was going to say it wrong, and you made fun of me. But no. There's a diaresis over the U. And so that in, makes it. In the pronunciation for snoot. But snoot is S-N-O-O-T. Right. It's a David Foster Wallace term. So, Are you a fan of David Foster Wallace? Well, he's I've, I've admired some of his work, although I don't think I I don't think I have quite the familiarity that you do. But this is a very fascinating piece, and, and we're going to talk about where this comes from. But there's a definition for snoot, right? Right and here in this book that I'm holding, in Nino and Me. That's right. So yeah. we're going to talk about that first. Would you mind indulging me for a second? Could you read out the definition of snoot? Sure. I've got it right here. Okay. Then we're going to talk about where it comes from. Snoot, noun 2001, acronym for either syntax nudnik or nerd of our time, or Sprachgefühl necessitates our ongoing tendence. So that's the etymology, then the definition. A person who cares intensely about words, usage, and grammar, and who adheres to a kind of enlightened prescriptivism that assesses language for its aptness, clarity, succinctness, and power. Then there's what's called after the bullet stuff, which sure. I call it ABS, after sure. the bullet stuff. That's encyclopedic information for a dictionary entry, and you see them throughout Black's Law Dictionary. The term was first used in print in the April 2001 issue of Harper's Magazine in an essay entitled Tense Present by David Foster Wallace, who described it as familial jargon with more positive connotations than the dysphemisms grammar Nazi, usage nerd, syntax snob, and language police. <laughs> Snoot. Yeah. I noticed in this definition, there's no mention of the word geek. It's either, it's just nerd. I guess grammar geek. Do people say grammar geek? I mean, maybe I they, think they should. Yeah. You At know? least it's got the alliteration. Exactly. And plus, I think there's a difference between a nerd and a geek. You know, the geek is somebody who's cool. There's an inherent coolness to being a geek, you know, sort of like the computer programmers. So we need we need grammar geeks. What do you think? Do we? I think it's good. So we're gonna. That's right here. I hadn't thought of it. I didn't. Uh, geek was not a word that was used much when I was a kid. So I've always thought of geek as kind of newfangled. But it does have more positive connotations than nerd. I think. So here we go. The State Bar of Texas podcast. Where we've just invented the term grammar geek. It's a synonym of snoot. There you go. We like. I, I love this. See, this is new material, right? This is innovation. This is legal innovation, right here in your ears, right? So let's talk for a second about where we find this definition, and let's talk about David Foster Wallace and everything that went into the making of of this book. I've got a book in my hand that Brian, you just got published a couple months ago, right? January of two thousand eighteen. Nino and me. This is about your friendship with Justice Scalia. So, first of all, Nino, that was his nickname? It was, yeah. 
It marked a major transition in our relationship when he went from being Justice Scalia to insisting that I call him Nino. Talk about that for a second. When did that happen? It happened in June 2007, and it was at his house. He had, you know, our literary collaboration got off to a bit of a rocky start. We had a misunderstanding early on. He said he wanted out. Uh, There was... uh, he accused me of trying to capitalize on his name and not use what he had written for our book. And oh, so, wow. so we, we had this kind of tumultuous early relationship. But then when he understood that he just hadn't opened the relevant computer file, because <laughs> he didn't, I, I came to understand he didn't open attachments. So I had to fax him things instead of okay. sending him a computer attachment because he wouldn't open attachments. And that's where the misunderstanding that's right. from. Okay. Yeah. But the accusations were pretty severe on his part in a telephone conversation, and I recount that. Now, so early on, I mean, I didn't know Justice Scalia at all well. I certainly didn't know how much I would come to love the man and what kind of close relationship we would have. But after we mended that problem, some few months later, we were at his house and having dinner, my daughter Caroline and I, and he and Mrs. Scalia. And he he called me aside, he was mixing a drink, and he said, Brian, there's something I've been meaning to tell you. And I said, what's that? He said, I don't think we can continue working together. And wow. my heart sank. I thought, this is horrible. And then he added, if you continue calling me Justice Scalia, I'm, wow. I'm Nino. To you. Was it weird or odd to call him Nino after that point? Did it feel natural or did it feel, did it take some getting used to on your part? It was surprisingly easy. I don't know why that was. I remember when Charles Allen Wright, with whom I had a, a similar close friendship, when Professor Wright went from Professor Wright to Charlie, that was actually a very difficult. More so uh, than Nino. Yeah. I think because he had been a, a professor at UT Law, I had never had a class with Charles Allen Wright. I was, he was a thoroughly intimidating man, mm-hmm. and um, little did I know that we would develop this close friendship as a result of the first usage book. My first book came out, and mm-hmm. Professor Wright became a, a big fan of it. But he became Charlie after about eight months of daily correspondence. Um, before we actually met. And so th- that was a difficult one. Maybe Charlie, in lots of ways, uh, made me feel comfortable about having a friendship with a revered, exalted person, much, you know, many, mm-hmm. m- many years my elder. Justice Scalia was 22 years older, but we traveled the world together and we gave presentations together, I think twice for the state bar, mm-hmm. for the state bar annual meeting here in Dallas back in 2009. And he was just a great co-author, somebody to share the stage with and present with and and write with. And uh, so anyway, calling him Nino seemed oddly natural, but it reminded me of the moment that Professor Wright became Charlie. Now, in your the very cover of your book, you say, my unusual friendship with Justice Antonin Scalia. You use the word unusual, not unexpected, not... You're a snoot when it comes to words. You know words very well. You chose the word unusual. 
Why that word? What was unusual about that friendship? Well, there were many impediments to the friendship, one of which was geographic. Another was the age difference. It's rather unusual for two people to bond so tightly over an interest in language. I guess it's a little unusual. On the other hand, that's how I bonded with uh, David Foster Wallace and also with Charles Allen Wright. So people who care a lot about language can pretty readily bond with each other over that. I have found over the course of my life, and uh, that's been the genesis of several close friendships. But it was with Justice Scalia. On the other hand, there were serious impediments. There were, you know, I'd met the man twice when I suggested that we collaborate on a book. Mm-hmm. That was kind of unusual, and that, mm-hmm. that he would accept. Well, there were there were people in his life who were very suspicious of me. I think I I didn't realize it at the time. Mm. But suspicious th- in what way? Do you know? Oh, law professors who were very close to him, wondering why are you writing books with Garner and not me? Of course, I mean, if you're gonna, sure. I've known you for decades. Mm. If you're gonna write a book with somebody. Why don't you write with me? So that was going on. I think some of his close friends who are very devout were very suspicious of uh, having him collaborate with uh, an unbeliever. And now that's getting kind of personal, mm-hmm. but it's true. And then I think the New Yorkers in his life and some of the Washingtonians were saying, you know, we're, we're suspicious Texan. of this interloping <laughs> Texan. That's right. So – when anybody you know ascends to the kind of eminence that Justice Scalia had, there there are all sorts of protective layers mm-hmm. that it was uh, surprising to him, I think, and surprising to me. Not only that we enjoyed writing books so much together, but that we came to love each other. Was there a turning point? So you know, you've described for us how how you went from Justice Scalia to Nino. But was there a point at which he went from Nino, your your collaborator on the book, to becoming this dear, close, personal friend about whom you could obviously write many hundreds of pages? Was there a moment when that transition occurred? No, I, I can't really, I can't pinpoint it. One of the things about the book, I mean, the book is about literary collaboration. It's also mm-hmm. about friendship. And sure. it, it's, there are so many accidents that must occur for the formation of a friendship. And ours had more impediments than probably most would have just in its its very development. But you see the progress of how unlikely the whole alliance was from the beginning to our beginning to, you know, be concerned for each other. I mean, he, you know, stood by me and helped me in various ways. I, I suffered a, a bad injury on my left arm and was crippled for two years. He was so concerned and he wanted me to have surgery and I wasn't sure about it, but he found the very best surgeon at Johns Hopkins, one of only four people in the, in the world who could perform this operation. And the fact that I can lift my left hand and, and grasp things with it mm-hmm. is, uh, is kind of a miracle. 
But I, you know, wow. I owe that to him to a great degree. He saved your life as you knew it at that time or before the accident in some ways. And he made a new life for me. Mm. I mean, just writing those books, which was uh, an exhilarating experience for us both. I mean, and I, I recount in Nino and Me how how we we wrote the books together and mm -hmm. the arguments that we would have in chambers contractions about this passage <laughs> and that passage and and difficulties i mean there were a lot of difficulties because we're both strong-willed i think uh, impatient and tenacious people so we we did have struggles but the way he would explain it to audiences he would say you know, 80% of the time when Garner and I disagreed, I would go his way. And mm. then he would add to the audiences, you know me, Nino Scalia, go along to get along. <laughs> People love that. <laughs> and so he called himself Nino in front of the audiences too. Occasionally, yeah. Everybody close to him, his family, well, I mean, his... I guess, extended family. The clerks would always call him, his former clerks would always Justice call him Scalia. Justice Scalia. Of That's course. right. And and everybody in chambers would call him Justice. His assistants would call him Justice. It's almost like a first name. So mm -hmm. when we were on our last trip together in Hong Kong, we had a tour guide. It was 2016, right? That's right. Giving us a walking tour of Hong Kong. And he insisted on calling everybody by his first name. He was almost like a Monty Python character, like a Michael Palin sort of Monty Python character. You're talking character. about the tour guide. Yeah, okay. he was a bumbling fool, really. <laughs> and he wanted to, you know, he wanted me to be Brian, Caroline, and Tom. And and I said, This is Justice Scalia. He said, Yes, but what's the first name? And I said, uh, his first name is Justice. <laughs> so did he call him Justice? He called him Justice. That's oh, good. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So at least he didn't push any he didn't push that button any further than he had to. They said justice. But he had no idea. I mean, he said, oh, well, I had a judge last week. I'm accustomed to having judges. I had a, a New Zealand trial judge that I took on a tour last week, as if this was some big honor. He had no idea who he was dealing with in, in Justice Scalia. That had to have been kind of refreshing, though, for Justice Scalia to be someplace where he's just a normal person. People aren't tripping over themselves to go meet him. Oh, I think he liked that, yeah. He liked that. And I think one of the things he, he liked about our friendship is I was probably one of the few people in his life not wanting to talk about cases. You know, the, mm. we never talked about cases. I mean, he would, he would say, oh, earlier today we handed down a decision that did so-and-so, and he would explain it to me and what his position was. But mostly we would discuss legal concepts. We would discuss legal interpretation we would discuss cases that I would bring to him, but we wouldn't discuss the docket of the Supreme Court or what was happening up there. I think that's what a lot of people in his life were trying to, it would dominate the conversations. And so I think he liked the idea of discussing language and jurisprudence and things like that, but not talking about the current cases. So would he talk language and jurisprudence even with family members or was it was that something mainly for other lawyers, folks like you? You know, I never actually saw him interact with his family, oh. except Mrs. Scalia. We would go out for dinner. Caroline and I would go with Justice Scalia and, and Mrs. Scalia, and we enjoyed our dinners of four. But I never really 
got to know any of the, the rest of the family. So when you were at these dinners of four, mm. there's, there's four of you there, two of you avid scholars of English and of the legal usage of the English language, is that what you would mostly talk about? Or would there be other topics since there's two couples? Now, I know, I know Caroline is, she's a lawyer as well, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is Mrs. Scalia a lawyer? No. Okay. But they had interests in common from etiquette to, we would talk about mores. I mean, we liked really? discussing, yes, the state of social behavior. Uh, we at, did. At, at, at dinner time, you guys would talk oh, about sure, social behavior. Sure. Look at that guy over there. He's got a hat on in this restaurant. And I can't tell you how many times we had to change tables because a man <laughs> in the restaurant would be wearing a hat in Justice Scalia's vision. But it, and it bothered me too. We were very uh, like-minded about stuff like that. I, I blame my mother and I blame my grandmothers for that because they burdened me with the inviolable idea that it is grossly boorish behavior for a man to wear a hat inside. And I wish I didn't have this uh, strong conviction that was inculcated into me when I was a very small child, but it was. And and so did Justice Scalia. He oh, yeah, he way. felt very strongly about that. And, and the decay of just social norms generally. What are some other social norms that... Well, a lot of them are linguistic. Decry? I mean, we talk about what's going on linguistically. But in a way, you know, there are some people who try to say that English usage is a matter of manners. I mean, why does it matter that you use one form of a word? Why does it really matter that you say presumptuous, not presumptuous, mm. T-I-O-U-S? It's presumptuous. I mean, it, so why, why should that matter? And the answer is really that it's just a matter of convention, and it's settled literary convention. But there are many people who couldn't care less. And the people who couldn't care less are likely to say they could care less. Right. I was going to say yeah. that that's a common misuse of... So let's talk about the contractions. You and Justice Scalia, oftentimes... The, the, I think that was one of your most famous differences of opinion, was the use of contractions in legal briefs. In our first book, Making Your Case, we had four debates. And right. contractions was really the first subject uh, that we debated. And I have to say, having these debates, we couldn't figure out what to do in the book about the points we disagreed on because he wasn't budging and I wasn't budging. And ultimately, we decided we would just abandon our joint voice, which we had throughout Making Your Case, and we would have, he said, Brian, you write the majority opinion. I'm going to write a dissent. The dissent. dissent. That's right. <laughs> And he loved that. I mean, he loved debating me. But on the other hand, he was a very congenial co-author, and he, as he liked to point out to audiences, he went my way. So the first book is full of contractions, even though he was absolutely dead set against them. Why uh, was he dead set against them? He said, you know, Garner likes contractions. And by the way, may I just point out that today, five of the U.S. Supreme Court justices do use contractions, including the chief but always in separate opinions. Hmm. So there is one justice, I'm pretty sure it's Justice Kennedy, who is still dead set against contractions, so they're not used in majority opinions. But I suspect that they okay. will come to be used in majority opinions at some point. 
Probably, it depends on Kennedy's replacement. I kind of suspect uh, whenever that happens, I don't know uh, when he might retire, but or if he will retire. But Justice Scalia and Justice Kennedy, I think, agreed on contractions. They thought it was similar to wearing Bermuda shorts into an oral argument. <laughs> that's, I mean, that that's Justice Scalia's comparison. My point is that all the best nonfiction writing of our day, whether it's in Harper's or The New Yorker or The Economist or The Atlantic Monthly, um, is full of contractions. And if you would naturally say it is a contraction, it reads a lot better that way. And the writing has more power. You know, Chief Justice Nathan Hecht uses contractions. Mm -hmm. Justice Gorsuch, as a Tenth Circuit judge, would use double contractions. That is, he would use the contraction shouldn't have mm -hmm. and couldn't have and wouldn't have. Mm -hmm. One word with two apostrophes. Now, Justice Scalia would have gone would have gone crazy with that. I mean, it was like, wait, what do you two contractions in in one word? There's a passage in Nino and Me mm. in which he reacts to my sending him an email about this Tenth Circuit Judge Gorsuch. <laughs> now, this brings up an interesting question that. When it comes to the usage of the English language, especially written usage of the English language, especially legal written usage of the English language, do you think, and please, if you think you know what Justice Scalia might have said about this, is it more important for us to adhere to norms and traditional rules, or do we need to break conventions and try to look for new usages of these old rules of construction? So, for example, with the contractions. You know, there was a time when lawyers would have balked at the idea of using a contraction in a legal brief, but now there's some, there's some give to that. As lawyers, should we be trying to push that boundary, or do we try to play a more conservative role in our legal writing? Well, I think of myself as a traditionalist. You know, I am a traditionalist. I believe <laughs> in literary continuity, but contractions have been with us for a long time, and in a way... One great thing about them in legal writing is that they combat stuffiness. And one thing that you have throughout a lot of legal writing is a very stuffy, artificial tone. If you're trying to get to a real human voice, a genuine human voice, contractions help you do that. And that's why the best nonfiction writers of our day use them. On the other hand, when it comes to grammarians, and you know some of the books mm -hmm. that I write are books on English grammar, I'm about as conservative a grammarian as you will find in print today, and I like good, traditional uses of literary language. So I don't think people ought to be searching for new usages. The English language is this wonderfully supple and variegated tool that we have, and people need to learn how to use it really well. I also think law is the highest calling that you can have where our only tool is words. I mean, that's all we have is words. So lawyers ought to be really good at using the language well. It seems to me any self-respecting lawyer should be ashamed if anybody else in the lawyer's family knows more about punctuation or pronunciation or the word you brought up earlier, English syntax. But let me take a moment. You know, some people think the old rules about language are things like don't end a sentence with a preposition. 
Mm-hmm. That is false. It's always been false, and no serious grammarian has ever taken that position. Or don't split an infinitive, or you can't begin a sentence with and or but. Well, these are non-rules. Those are not really, they've never been rules of English grammar. But our English teachers in grade school. That's true. Put those rules in our heads. That's true, isn't it? And, you know, your third grade teacher lied to you. In her defense, she was trying to cope with a little problem that, so all of us in third grade want to begin every sentence with and. And so third grade teachers simply say, don't do that. Now, what they can't do, because third graders can't follow this kind of instruction, mm-hmm. they will not say, don't begin a sentence with and or but for now, but later, if you're going to be a professional writer and a published author, you'll want 10 to 20% of your sentences beginning that way. Third graders can't follow that. So they just say don't. Do you think Justice Scalia would would agree with with what you said? Absolutely. I mean, we wrote about it in Making Your Case. And one of the reasons that we agreed that our literary styles melded so seamlessly was precisely that we, we had the same kind of style of beginning sentences with and and but. I mean, that's partly what made him such a, a brilliant writer. People don't focus on that much, but that's how you connect sentences very smoothly. And you, you can overdo it. Uh, again, <laughs> what you'll find in first-rate prose is usually 10 to 20%. 10 to 20% usage of and or but. Begin sentences beginning with and, but, so, yet, or, and nor. In other words, conjunctions. Got it. Okay. Now, as we're nearing the end of our time together. I can't believe it. I mean, it, how how is this coming to an end so soon? Time flies when you're having fun and you're talking about grammar and, and you're inventing terms like grammar geek. Well, now I wish I hadn't given you this arbitrary deadline. Well, see, that goes back to my earlier question. It doesn't mean I'm budging from it. I was going to say rules were meant to be broken. You'd better get on with the interview. Well, I'm, the I'm trying. Okay. You're, you're, you're stalling me over here. So before we, before we wrap up, I wanted to give you a chance to maybe talk a bit about what you think, looking back, what do you think Justice Scalia's legacy will be? How will history remember him? Well, I do think he is uh, the most misunderstood judge in modern times and probably one of the most misunderstood people in public life. His great legacy is going to be textualism. As Justice Kagan has said, we're all textualists now. All serious judges pay I say that. It's not actually true. Mm. I mean, until recently, uh, Judge Posner, of course, was on the bench, and he said he's anything but a textualist, and he's a consequentialist. But there are three approaches to statutory interpretation or the interpretation of any kind of legal instrument, contract, will, whatever it might be. The three major approaches are textualism, meaning we pay very close attention to the words, the syntax, And we look at dictionaries because we want to know what the ordinary meaning of of words is. So textualists are very close analysts of words, grammar, syntax. Is that strict interpretationist? No, no, no. It's a fair reading. So Justice Scalia would disclaim being a a strict constructionist. Strict, as traditionally meant in legal circles, narrowed, uh, a very narrow construction. And so, anyway, he was the quintessential textualist. A very small part of textualism is originalism, which simply means 
we also want to know what the words meant at the time of enactment. Now, that's pretty uncontroversial, except when it comes to constitutional interpretation. Anyway, textualism is one approach. A second is purposivism. And a purposivist says, don't tell me too much about what the words are and the syntax and that kind of the grammar. I don't. What was Congress trying to do when they enacted this statute? Broadly speaking, what were they trying to do? And purposivism allows judges to go around or behind the words of a legal instrument to get a desired result that they think Congress would have wanted or whoever the drafters were. The third approach is consequentialism. And the consequentialist is not looking back to what Congress had intended, but looking forward to what is the best result I can reach, regardless of the words. Look, don't talk to me about words and grammar and syntax. I want to know what is the best result, what is the best gloss I can put on the law despite what the words say. So that's consequentialism. There are actually very few judges who will openly say they are consequentialist. There are more judges. Justice Breyer is probably our quintessential purposivist today. But I think Scalia's great legacy is that textualism has made great advances, that judges everywhere of any political background tend to pay very close heed to the words. And uh, it's a great legacy to have. It is indeed. Well, you know, Brian, I think we're going to have to continue this discussion on another podcast episode. Would you be open to that? Absolutely. I hope yeah. we can. Oh, I think it'd be great. We can we can delve further into these, into objectivists, purposivists, and consequentialists. This sounds fascinating. So we're going to call this a to-be-continued. We're not going to call this the end of our talk with Brian Garner. We're going to do this again. So ladies and gentlemen, what an amazing session. Thank you, Brian, for being here. And don't forget to pick up your copy of Nino and Me by Brian Garner. It's, as he says, my unusual friendship with Justice Antonin Scalia. It's kind of getting behind the veneer and getting to know one of our revered justices in a way that only a very close friend can. So thank you for listening to the State Bar of Texas podcast today. If you like what you heard today, you can find us at thelegaltalknetwork.com. Also, please remember to rate us in Apple Podcasts and or follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Rocky, I would I would give you a very high rating for what you've just done. It was very, very good. Oh, well, thank it you. It was much better than your colleagues were letting on it might be. I think maybe you talked to my wife. That might that might be where you got the one-star rating. That, Yeah, so. <laughs> Brian, thank you again. Thank you. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next time on the State Bar of Texas podcast. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Go to TexasBar.com slash podcasts. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts and RSS. Find both the State Bar of Texas and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the State Bar of Texas, Legal Talk Network, or their respective officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, or subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.